Welcome back to DNC in 23 with WP. I'm Alex, your host for today's supersized episode, talking all things 5823 at Barton Hall. We are going to recap last night's show and precap what's up next on the Golden Road. So last night's show was the first and only night that the dead were playing at Barton Hall in Ithaca, New York, a show on Cornell's campus benefiting Music Hairs and the Cornell 2030 Project, and also in honor of the 46th anniversary of the Grateful Dead's legendary show, colloquially known as Cornell 77, played at the same venue 46 years ago on May 8th, 1977. We poked around and found out that our good friend Howard Weiner was on the ground in Ithaca for the show, and Howard was kind enough to join me to talk about his experience there and a bit about the show itself, as well as his new book, which just came out on May 8th. Um, That book is called The Grateful Pilgrimage, Time Travel with the Dead. Before we get into my chat with Howard, though, just a couple of my own thoughts about the great, great, great Dead & Co. show at Barton Hall just uh, two nights ago. So um, I, I go over the set list with Howard, um, and so if you if you want to hear the whole set list, you can um, you can just keep listening, and we will talk about it. But I want to talk about a couple of of highlights for me. There were so many just amazing solos throughout this show. John Mayer broke off some really tremendous ones in Althea and Estimated Profit. We talk about that. Um, there's this super soulful one in kind of the beginning of Eyes of the World, and then Comenti picks it up and just goes off. Uh, O'Teal has a great little bass solo at the end of Eyes of the World too, which is really, really good. And then in Bertha, there's this great moment where John and Jeff, and Jeff is like working that that B3 organ, um, they just come together in this mind meld that is just tremendous. Um, also, the jam that the whole band gets into at the end of Cassidy is just like peak, peak Dead & Company, um, I thought. And the peak of the deal jam was absolutely scorching. I mean, I think that's one of the best deals that Dead & Company has ever played. Um, I think that in the second set, they just really didn't miss. I mean, every performance was excellent, but I think none greater than the Morning Dew finale. Uh, and then having a Terrapin Station encore, it's only the second time they've done that. The last was um, last year, last fall, and, uh, or excuse me, last summer at Folsom Fields in Boulder. Coincidentally, they concluded that show with Morning Dew as well. So this is the second time we've heard them play Dew and then Terrapin. And man, it just doesn't disappoint. It's such a unique and, and special combo. So for those of you who are wondering, maybe how does this show fit into the pantheon of great Dead & Company shows? If you go to deadyversion.com, you can vote on what you think is the best show and the best performance of each of Dead & Company's songs. Uh, the number one show currently on the list is the Wrigley Field show from the the second night at Wrigley in 2021, and number two is a really wonderful show that they played at Autzen Stadium in Eugene, Oregon back in 2016. I think that when it's all said and done, this show at Barton Hall is going to take the throne from those two shows. Um, a couple of reasons why I think that. Number one, all the playing was amazing. I mean, they just, they were on fire this night. As I said to Howard, it was a three-hour and 27-minute long show. Um, from the time they first walked on stage to the time they left, it was more like 4, 4.10, um, including the set break. But three and a half hours of music is uh, its rarefied air. That's a really long concert. During the set break, Gary Lambert told Mickey Hart, who he was interviewing um, during the set break, quote, 
that set list was every bit as good as any music that has ever been played in this building. That's, I mean, Gary Lambert, the host of Tales from the Golden Road, he's listened to a lot of Grateful Dead music and a lot of Dead and Company music. And for him to say something like that is, um, I mean, potentially, you know, caught up in the moment. He was in the venue and hearing it. Um, but I really wouldn't discount that. I think he he really meant it. And I've seen two different articles, um, on one on long, uh, liveforlivemusic.com and another on Relics that talk about how fans are already saying this is the, the peak of Dead & Co.'s powers. So I don't know. I'd be curious to hear. If, if you guys think this is the best Dead & Company show, let me know. Um, I'd love to hear from you guys um, what you think about it um, and where you think it fits into the pantheon of great Dead & Company shows. All right, without further ado, let's kick it to my interview with Howard Weiner, and then I'll come back and, and close this thing out. So here he is, Howard Weiner. <laughs> I, I guess maybe I should give this introduction before we just charge right in. So Howard Weiner is back on Working Man's Pod today. It is he and I talking about the Dead & Company's show at Cornell, which was great, and Howard was in Ithaca for it. And also Howard's new book, which um, is very exciting that it is now out. The Grateful Pilgrimage, Time Travel with the Dead, right? Correct, yeah. Um, it came out yesterday, and um, so if I'm in the Hartford chapter, I'm about 40% through, I would say. But Yeah, the, almost half. You're almost halfway home. The fact that I've read that much in one day should tell you everything you need to know about this book, everyone. You should go pick it up. It's a great read. Howard's typical um, great writing and you know intertwining pieces of yourself and your own history and the things that you're thinking about and feeling right now with, you know, great stories about the Grateful Dead and your kind of analysis of the music of the their fall tour of 1983. I'm just, I'm loving it so far. Hey, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, the, the idea, I guess I'm a pioneer doing this. I don't know if anyone's ever done this kind of thing before, which made it inst- instantly attractive, like I had to do it. So it's uh, kind of dueling road trips where I um, go back to all the uh, spots uh, of the 1983 fall tour yeah, I go back to Richmond, Greensboro, Madison Square Garden, all in order on the anniversary dates. And um, I try to get in there listen to the music and reflect back on what was happening as well as bringing you up to date on what's going on in 2022 and all the weird changes in the world over 40 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. There's um, there are a lot of themes that I've already picked up on just the part that I've read you know, what you're just talking about, there's a bit of nostalgia, obviously. You're going back in time and thinking about where was I? What was I doing when I was at this show? Who was I with? And then what's it like now? A lot of the venues have, you know, stopped hosting concerts because it's not just the venues that you went to in fall 83. Um, You also stop at a bunch of other venues along the way that you had seen The Dead or JGB at. And so it's kind of cool that you even broadened your horizons out beyond that fall 83 tour. Yeah. It's, it's a pilgrimage. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it, there is, it's definitely, it feels religious when you're, you know, you're listening to the Grateful Dead and you're following around and you're uh, going back to old times. It's, hey, to me, it's bigger than religion. I got to be honest about that. So I think the word pilgrimage fits it pretty good. And on the off days and the tour, you know, I have plenty of time to do some things. So I figured, Hey, that'd be cool to, check out nearby venues. So I go to Lehigh uh, 
Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Garcia played there, the Grateful Dead played there in 1981. It must have been incredible for the students in Lehigh that year. <laughs> and um, I, got, I go to a 77 show in Colgate, but I guess it all kicked off with um, Barton Hall. You know, I went up to Barton Hall uh, last year, 2022 on May 8th, because I was being interviewed that day on Tales for the Golden Road, Mr. David Gans and Gary Lambert. And I just had this inspired inclination to do this, man. I was like, this is not enough. I just can't go to Barn Hall and really relive the magic of that. Why not do a whole tour? And uh, thankfully, I went through with it, man. Sometimes when you have an, have an idea, even if it seems silly or whatever, nobody's done it before, those are probably the ones you should pounce on and go through with it. Absolutely. You had a, a line in the book where you kind of made a similar point about you got to pounce on it before it disappears. Oh, exactly. I, like, I, I was really excited about it, but then something happened in my life and I was kind of caught up in that. I'm making money. I got a new job. I'm doing good. And I said, I got to put this off. And then all of a sudden, three weeks before, I was like, what the hell am I thinking, man? <laughs> this is this will be more fun than a vacation to Mexico or wherever I might take a vacation. I was like, this is like an active participant vacation as opposed to sitting back on a beach somewhere. So I was like, you know, I actually got excited to do this kind of as a vacation. Hell yeah. And life is short. You know, if you have a great idea like this, why not? I, I mean, I'm sure you've been hearing maybe some trickles of feedback. It's only been out for a day. So people probably haven't had time to read the whole thing just yet. But I think the, the response is going to be really good just because it is such a good idea. And then your execution, in my opinion, is also excellent. One thing I wanted to ask about about the execution is, did you write a lot of this while you were traveling or was it more taking notes and then kind of consolidating it and really doing more of the writing after the trip? Yeah, it's definitely uh, the, the note taking. I, I break out my iPhone. I got a little, um, it's actually called notes, that, that little notes thing on the iPhone. It's, it's invaluable. So I always do my, do my books on there. Even if I'm like listening to music, I'm going to write about it. I jot down the notes and then, Later on, I have this, this serious sit-down writing session where I try to present it as uh, mo as most uh, compelling as I can. Definitely a good way of doing it. You know, if, you, if you're if you're writing something, you know, don't worry too much about getting it right the first time. Just get the get all the facts down, put it somewhere, and then go back and uh, and get to it. That makes sense. the The chapter in Harrisburg, you talk about someone like looking over your shoulder and seeing that you had written pilgrimage not pilgrimage. Uh, that was pretty funny. It was nice to know that somebody was eavesdropping on my, on my writing. I'm sitting there at the, the bar. The nice looking woman too. I'm like, you know, it's uh, like, come on, you're, you're eavesdropping on what I'm writing. But uh, she, she eavesdropped and she was correct. I misspelled pilgrimage as pilgrimage. <laughs> <laughs> and she said her father was really into like, you know, pork and, and pigs and all that. I'm like, gee, that's a good idea for like people who are really <laughs> nutty about, uh, about roast pork and uh, sausage and all that, a pilgrimage, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not bad, but yeah, there's that. And then there was a part when you were in the city and you were talking about ducking into a place in Manhattan that you had enjoyed writing. And in my head, I was like, man, was he writing all of this as he was going? I feel like that would be so challenging, but this makes more sense to me getting the facts down and then you have your real in-depth writing sessions um, after the fact. That was pretty cool going back to New York city, man. The memories that uncorks, like I, um, I lived in Manhattan for about 20 years and that's the world. There, there's no, there's no, there's nothing but Manhattan when you live there. And when you leave, you, you're on the outside. It's like, you know, either you're, you're totally sucked into the Manhattan experience or you're on the outside. So when I came back, man, it just blew my mind. 
And then let alone thinking about 1983, what New York City was like back then and going to those Madison Square Garden shows, man. It was, uh, it was an incredible time, man. You know, New York City was a crazy place back then and it was uh, kind of dangerous. And you know, we were yeah. uh, touring in 83, but uh, that first night they played St. Stephen, man. Just, oh my God. I mean, it was so exciting. And, and one of the things that was out there, they had sound checked in uh, Greensboro the night before. And, uh, but I had heard so many St. Stephen rumors that it was persistent for like a year. But by the time that show came, I had totally given up. I was like, they're never playing St. Stephen. So it caught, it totally, even though the rumors were out there, it totally caught me off guard because I had officially given up hoping for St. Stephen. Then they broke it out that night. And just, it, it was so overwhelming and exciting. I, it was almost hard to enjoy in the moment because my friends there were grabbing each other and punching each other, you know, because it's like, is this real? You know, we're here in St. Stephen. <laughs> it, was, it was like that exciting. But uh, it turns out to be a pretty great performance on, on Listen Back. I, you know, it's uh, for a 1983 version, they, they really kind of nailed it that night. Oh, yeah, completely agree. And that's one of the highlights of that box set that came out last year, I think, was that St. Stephen. And the first set's very good, too. <laughs> the funny thing I'll, I'll mention about that show and being like a crazy fan and maybe even taking it perhaps a little too seriously was I, I get to the show and I walk in on Jack Straw, a very hot Jack Straw, and I'm having a great time. And Birdsong and the set rolls along and they end with a bucket day job. And it seems like a seven song set. And I am freaking pissed, man, because <laughs> I, I took this stuff seriously, man. It was like, yeah, this was life and death to me. And I'm not like, you know, I'm trying to turn to my friend like, oh, that sucked. And like, <laughs> but actually, like, I mean, that's later on, they play St. Stephen. They do a great second set. But it was kind of funny how how passionate we were about uh, what they were playing and the outcome, which I'm not, I'm not as outcome orientated these days as I, as I used to be. But it turns out that day they kind of started earlier than usual. And they mm -hmm. actually opened up with Wang Dang Doodle. So it makes the first set even better than, than it appeared at the time. And listening to it on tape, everything's sizzling. It's like a beautiful first set to listen to. Yeah, it's interesting. There are all, I don't know. Did you go to either of the Dead & Coast City Field shows last year? They were. I, I had a blast. I think that that second one was the most fun I've ever had at a Dead & Coast show. The crowd was great not too much like talking around me so I could really focus on the music. Everyone was in it. People were singing along like every word and it was just a packed house at city field. Um, and I've listened to it since. And Bob's voice was really rough that night. I, you know, end of the tour, he, his voice was a little bit scratchy. I could not have told you that I was having too good of a time to even notice something like that. So it's kind of interesting that you had the inverse experience where you were like, man, that wasn't even that good. But then after the fact, you listened to it and you were like, what was I thinking? This was amazing. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. The, and also when you, when you hear a true masterpiece live, sometimes you can't, you can't, even if you're, if you know, it's great, it's even hard to take in the magnitude of it, you know? And um, like that, that, I think that was the way it was for me. I think two of the greatest versions I've ever heard in my life are from that 83 tour, which is why I, one of the reasons I chose that one. Uh, to revisit, you got the um, Help Slip Franklin's from uh, October 12th, which is just ridiculous. I think that it's the best version ever. Uh, from the from the time uh, Jerry stopped the last verse of Help on the way to the first verse of Franklin's, I call that the best 10, min 10 minutes of music I ever saw live. To me, it's that impressive. And then in Franklin's, which is kind of a, you know, it's a redundant song, it's the same chord over and over to be creative on every jam in Franklin's is, is near impossible. Jerry nailed every freaking jam on that Franklin's. It's incredible. Yeah. So, um, and then the Scarlet Fire from Hartford, which 
Dick released his volume six. He was right on the money. He knew it. It was a great, the first set's pretty standard, but the second set they played standard, standard stuff too. But some of the best versions you'll ever hear at Scarlet Fire is brilliant. And um, yeah, so that tour really had some incredible like masterpiece stuff. And, and, and also at that period, you did have some uh, shorter first sets than usual. There were, you know, it definitely, you're not going to say it's the best year ever, but some of the versions they came out with in 83 was just top-notch stuff. Yeah, well, I've, I've really been enjoying reading it so far. I'm excited to finish the book and to go back and listen to more of those shows from 83 because the only ones I've heard so far are the MSG shows. Um, so I'm looking forward to you know, doing some more exploration inspired by your writing. Did you get a chance to get the uh, Dick's Picks Volume 6? Have you ever uh, heard that one or... Yeah, I have, but not in a long time. I listened to all 36 um, probably a year and a half ago. I haven't revisited it since then. Yeah, so the first set on that one is pretty typical. No reason to get excited. You wouldn't think a great show is coming. The second set, off the hook. It's just that every version is incredible. So Nice. I think it was on nice. the money. When he, when he picked something, there was a reason for it. And there's always some kind of, there was something stand out. You know, they, he, he really was a great archivist, man. He knew his stuff. As is as is Lemieux, yeah. but it's a Dick had first crack at the uh, at the great shows. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I'm going to come back to the book with a couple of questions at the end of our time together, but I do want to talk about Barton Hall because five eight seventy seven and Barton Hall cast a shadow over your book. You know, you start out talking about the trip that you took there last year and the fact that you went there in 2015 or 17. 15, or 17. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you went there just. Was it two days ago for the Dead & Co show? Yeah, Monday. Um, so this was the first time, though, that you've been there with a crowd of heads and been able to share your time at Barton Hall with more like-minded people. And I'm curious what that was like compared to your other trips there. Hey, it was pretty incredible. And just to play off the what you just said, is, uh, last year I was the only deadhead in Barton Hall. Yeah, I was playing basketball in Barn Hall. I was I listened to the entire show in Barn Hall. I was having I was having the greatest time, and I never could have dreamed on that day. I thought of the Grateful Pilgrimage and writing the book, so that's where the seed was planted. Mm-hmm. But I never could have dreamed that you know, Dead and Co would, would never play Barn Hall. It's too small. It was an impo- impossibility, but it happened. And so, so yeah, it, it was pretty amazing. It was uh, a great scene. The town was just flooded with uh, deadheads. But it wasn't over. It wasn't. It wasn't like a an obtrusive of invasion, which it could have been. Yeah. I think the ticket yeah. prices kept away a certain. There would have been ten times as many people if the ticket prices weren't weren't like you know as much as they were. So it, it was very cool. So it was such a it was such a nice scene. Everybody there was great. You know, you, there was no nothing heavy handed. No cops. No uh, security was nice. Everybody was very welcoming, and. Also, I had this incredible experience. I think you might have seen the picture on, uh, online. I, uh, um, I, I'm, I'm in the uh, Marriott Hotel, and I'm, I'm about to go downtown Ithaca. This is before the, the day before the show. And my, I had some kind of gut feeling. I was like, let me see what's going on in the lobby. I thought maybe there'd be somebody there I could tell about my book. or you know, what? I, was, I was thinking small, but I had like this gut feeling to go to the lobby. I go to the lobby, a guy calls me over and goes, take a look at this. I thought he was going to show me a bag of marijuana or something. <laughs> freaking Jerry's Travis Bean that he used in Cornell. And wow. I looked at it, I was like, holy shit, I think this is it. This guy's not putting me on. Is it the, the million dollar Jerry's guitar that he, he also used in English Town. And um, it was incredible. I think one other person besides me got to take a picture with it. And then wow. he went to like a VIP reception after, but 
I checked everything up. Before I put the picture online, I wanted to make sure that this was the guitar and everything was legitimate. He checked out, he owns guitars by Springsteen and other, you know, famous rockers. So, but incredible. I couldn't believe, you know, and had I gone straight to downtown Ithaca, I wouldn't have run into that. So that, that was just very cool seeing the the guitar, man. It was obviously unexpected. <laughs> and amazing. I mean, that's fantastic. So, so you got up the day before the show and then you stayed, did you stay the night of the show too, or did you drive back home? Um, I drove back home the, 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 night, the night of the show, which okay. um, I had to pull over and <laughs> do some sleeping on the side. It was, uh, yeah, there, there wasn't like, a, after the show, it was, it was a little chilly out. So there, there, there wasn't much of a scene. There wasn't a shakedown. So it was, it was a little, a little unusual, not the typical scene, you know, but it was, it was extremely cool. It was a, uh, I think it was a nice uh, breath of fresh air from the usual scene. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. It sounds like maybe the pre-show scene was more like those 83 shows where you talk about like this special secret brotherhood um, compared to then when the touchheads started to invade the scene in the later 80s and the early 90s and it became more of a crazy scene. Exactly. It's an ex- it, it, it's just part of uh, life when, uh, when people get bigger, stars, whatever. This, the scene changes. In 1983, if you were a deadhead, you knew something other people didn't know. Yeah, you, know, you you were cool. You you had a great taste in music. These days, it's still true these days. But I, I'd say, well, what do you think? Like a hundred times what the amount of people are, are into it than yeah. were back then. Yeah, definitely. Like a whole legion of deadheads and people who appreciate the music who never seen the Grateful Dead. <laughs> but look at this this great show is uh this great podcast is a great example of that man like you're so into it you you, you totally get it but it, it, and i guess the the popularity is it's, it's a great thing for, for for that purpose but back in the day it was like you know you know it's like we we knew something we had the bootleg tapes the rest of the world was in the dark so so yeah. if you were a deadhead and you knew the music like you you let you let somebody stay at your house you could walk into their circle and smoke their pot even if you didn't know them it was like you know was, these were the cool people they they knew the secret it's not like today when when you see someone you know like lebron james walked into a game with a uh dancing bear shirt on there's no way he knows the dead's music he just isn't it for the fashion there wasn't that in 83 it wouldn't have been like cool in the mainstream culture like that it was a special thing for the people who knew yeah, and you might see Bill Walton in a in a in a bear shirt. That was about it for <laughs> that NBA, was about but... it. <laughs> Yeah. So okay, let's talk about this show at Cornell because did you listen to it when you and I were emailing? You said that you listened to it like outside the venue because, like you said, the tickets were obscenely expensive. So were you just like listening to it with other people on the grounds? Exactly. So like, I'm not I'm not a great uh, authority to go to on what I think of the show because I caught parts <laughs> parts of it. I caught really good. Okay. And I was locked in. for the good a, lot, a large part of the second set. I was locked in. It was great. Okay. The uh, instrumentation was just brilliant, but um, and the song selections like well, the odd the odd thing which I thought was like all well, Jerry tunes in that second set, man, it was like China Cat Rider, Helps of Frank, Scarlet Fire, and Morning Dew, and I did predict. I, I didn't think they'd do the whole show, but I did predict they they would play Scarlet Fire and Morning Dew, and they and they did it because those those were like yes, the big they did. the big hitters <laughs> from that uh seventy seven show. So that so they touched on Cornell enough without having to play the whole show, which was very cool. Totally agree. I think it was a great balance. Yeah. So yeah, the, the playing was was really great. What I heard, and I kind of missed a lot of the first set. I was moving around. People were talking to me because I was promoting the book, so I didn't have my lockdown like usual. Listen to the music, but I think that's going to change five o'clock today. I think they're playing it on Sirius. Uh, yeah. 
yeah. on the Grateful Dead channel. So I think tonight I'm going to take a lockdown and listen to the whole thing and, you know, like I normally would with uh, good loud speakers going. And Right on. Well, let me, because our audience may not know, let me read the set list um, in full. And then um, we can talk about a couple of the high points, especially of that second set, because that was unreal. So um, they started the show just like the Grateful Dead did on 5877 with New Minglewood Blues. Then they played Althea, which didn't even exist in 77. <laughs> um, then Estimated Profit, which they did play on 5877 into Eyes of the World, which they didn't. Jack Straw. Cassidy and they closed out the first set with deal. Then the second set, you nailed it. Can I ask you a question on that first set? Yeah. How was how was the Jack Straw? It was good. I mean, the estimated profit for me was the high point of set one. Mayor was on fire, and O'Teal had some really cool runs on his base too. And Kementi had a great solo too. But um the Jack Straw was it was, it was still good. I didn't have any specific notes on it as I look at my little pad here. Yeah, it sounded like estimated was the ripper of that. Uh, I think I, I think I did hear the estimated. Uh, at, during the first set, I was doing various things, but I, I, I think I do remember hearing that. The second set, I mean, it's just a monster. You said it. China, Ryder, Help Slip, Franklin, Drums in Space, then Scarlet, Fire, and, Ma and Morning Dew. Um, and then an encore of Terrapin. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Like, <laughs> it's unreal. Jeez, man, inside there must have been like, you know, fever pitch because, yeah, they were just, they would, the best dead and company could be. That's what they gave you yeah. in that, that second set. It was unbelievable. I mean, uh, a couple other things to note about it. They played for three hours and 27 minutes. And that's just the music. I'm not including like the set break and stuff. So that that's longer than 14 of the 22 Europe 72 shows. It's 45 minutes longer than Cornell 77. These guys played forever. Yeah, that, that, well, that's why they couldn't recreate the uh, Cornell show because they would have been there for like 10 hours if they did the entire Cornell show. But it's, yeah, that, yeah, uh, amazing, man. It's, it's funny, they, they get a little criticism for being a little, playing a little slower, you know, but nothing felt, when I was listening, nothing felt dragged out. It was, it was brilliant. It was good stuff, man. Yeah, yeah, I thought so too. I. I will say a couple other monster performances from Cornell 77, that lazy lightning and supplication is amazing. The dancing in the street is an all timer for that song. I think not fade away in St. Stephen also epic, but I didn't miss them on this set because they yeah. played the song yeah, that they did play it, it so was, well. It, it, everything was, everything was great. And it was good that they didn't have to follow that, that script, you know, um, that yeah. was what it was. They kind of created their own history with paying a little homage to the, to the past. Um, to, yeah, to touch off your point, like the, the reason Cornell gets like this overrated, the 77, why there's this, this argument, whether how over the greatness of it. The first set of that Cornell show was just average for 77, which means it's great, but it, it, didn't, it didn't have a sugary, it didn't have a music never stop. It didn't have an eyes of the world. So it, it was, it's, which would have been a second set song. It's missing some of the big hitters from that year. So that's why there's good arguments to say that there's better shows than Cornell, but that second set, man, that, that is a special piece of music. The, the uh, second set from five, eight, 77, there's longer sets, but it's one of those perfect, like, you know, sets, forget the time for just, it's, it goes beyond description, man. It's, it's brilliant. I'll tell you the first time I heard it, I write about this in the book. Also, I'm going to the dentist with my father my father isn't a great with that fan. He's barely a music fan, but he understood that when we were driving somewhere, I controlled the music. 
So I, so I, I just I had just gotten to, to the dead. This is like my sixth tape. And nobody, my, my friend Doug, didn't even give me a buildup on Cornell. Uh, he, was, he was like, here you go, here's a hot tape, you know. At that point, it didn't have the legendary, and I, I put it in. And, you know, I, in the morning, I did a couple of bong hits. This is what I did when I was 16, I bong hits in the morning. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm listening to this skull. Blown away, man. I was like, this is, it was the most incredible thing I'd ever heard in my life. And um, it was our trip to the dentist was to Tiankers, New York, Dr. Lasner. <laughs> so it's 30 minutes. The trip was perfect for the Scarlet Fire. And I was, I, I was blow, blown away, man. I couldn't believe it. You know, it's such a great Scarlet Fire. And there, there was something about it. I've heard, I heard some great, great for the, at that time. I heard English Town and I was, I was getting into them. But like, to me, that was on top of the, on top of the mountain. It was, it was so crazy good. I was just, you know, wow. So even, even though it has like, uh, it's, it's reputation precedes at Cornell. There's magic there, which I had no idea of the reputation when I put the tape in. It didn't even have a reputation really at that time. Um, and, and it was an audience version. It was a very good audience recording. So um, it, it blew me away. And I, I was, you know, I, I put it on a, on a pedestal before it was, you know, before it became what it was. And, and I think the reason there was a lot of also a lot of uh, feedback against it. If you look at, uh, at um, Dead Base, which was the encyclopedia for, for the Grateful Dead, especially in the early 80s, and I mean, I'm sorry, in the late 80s, early 90s, every song from 5877 was rated the best, which is completely inaccurate. So some people would see that, that this isn't the greatest Jack Straw of all time. And that's, I think that led to some of the, the uh, Cornell being overrated. But regardless of what, what you think about it, it's part of folk folklore. Dead and Company helped make it even a bigger part of folklore. Now it's, you know, Barn Hall is the most famous concert they ever played. Yeah. Even probably out doing Benito or, you know. English Town. English Town. Def Watkins definitely out Glenn. doing English Town. Because English Town yeah. never, it, it was great. It had the 200,000 people there and everything about it. But uh, as far as folklore goes, Barn Hall's got it. Yeah. One of my friends is a, is a huge Led Zeppelin fan. And he was like talking about how he's like, if you want to find like the best Zeppelin shows, find their shows in New York, LA, Seattle. Like when they were in big cities, they turned it up a notch. And I was like, I think that that's actually the argument of why the dead were a more special live act because their two most famous shows are in Venita, Oregon and Ithaca, New York. <laughs> you just never knew when those guys were going to absolutely bring it. It didn't matter if they were in New York city or if they were in Greensboro or Columbia, South Carolina, the show before uh, you went to one in Richmond that you talk about in the book that was released, I think is Dick's picks 21. It's just a special show. You know, they, they brought it wherever they were. And it, yeah, it's like, you think about Vanita, that hippie, naked hippie behind the uh, pole dancing. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you don't get that at a Led Zeppelin show either. I don't but, think uh, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 one of the things you mentioned about where they bring it, my second chapter, and you, and you showed some interest in this, was on Music Mountain, uh, 61682. And um, that you would, it's a place that's unknown, but just see 61682 Music Mountain. If you looked at a list, that would probably pop out at you. You'd, you'd say, this is probably a great show. And it's one of the great Jerry Band shows of all time. And part of the pilgrimage before I actually went on the A3 tour, we went back to the Catskills. And we found the stage where Jerry played on in Music Mountain. And it's just sitting there. I think a Chinese or Korean guy has some stuff on the stage. Somebody, I think, owns it. 
it's unbelievable it's not demolished or our concert hasn't been on there in 38 years. It's just sitting there and we found it. It was like the most uh, arcane thing I've ever uh, ran into. It, it felt like, you know, you're on some kind of discovery show and the freaking stage is still there. <laughs> the Music Mountain stage was there. And, and that's um, probably one of the most beloved shows that Garcia uh, aficionados uh, look to is the uh, 61682 Music Mountain. Great show. Yeah, I can see why. That, that Roadrunner set to opener absolutely smokes i mean that entire show i'd never heard it before i was reading your book yesterday and put it on and my god some nights every song is a you get a couple extra rounds you, you, you could compare it to versions you've heard in the past everything how sweet it is catfish john everything's a couple minutes longer than it normally would be because Gar- garcia was very happy to be out there in the uh in the cat skills um i forget the exact statement but he's like um Bill Graham used to wait on uh, Mickey Hart's uh, you know, father at the at the hotels out there, and Garcia was in complete awe of being able to play in the Catskills, which was the uh, Borscht Belt uh, Alps, the, uh, a great entertainment uh, mecca in, in the fifties and sixties with, with all the famous comedians, and it and it just it turned into a, a ghost land. And uh, Music Mountain was like a kind of like a final shot to try to keep entertainment alive in there, and it, that didn't work out either. But luckily we got the Bethel Woods Performing Arts Center out there now, which is, you know, just kind right. of, you know, giving it some kind of a presence, you know, because the music out there and the history of entertainment out there is, is uh, colossal and important in American history. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, you're right. It's a part of American entertainment history that's not talked about enough. The Borscht Belt um, era of comedy and music and um, yeah, I love that in your book too, how you talk about the history of the areas that you're going to. In Greensboro, you talk about ACC history and um, you know the Greensboro Coliseum, things like that. You do the same in Harrisburg on your way out and on your way back, talking about the steel mill and um, Bethlehem Steel, things like that. Um, I just, I love the way that you bake that into your writing. It makes it a more full and deep reading experience, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the cool thing about the Grateful Dead, we're all like caught up in dates and this and that. So history is like a natural, uh, you know, a natural thing that comes from that. You know, when when you think back and you, you have like this, these great memories of the shows and the times. And I think since you mentioned that, it's the perfect setup to you haven't got to the chapter yet. The Lake Placid, man, that was that was the show we were all psyched for. That was the show I was so psyched to go or the place I was so psyched to go back to in 2022 the miracle on ice and, you know, and just thinking about w- where the world was in 83. Um, yeah. I mean, the Soviet Union and the United States were pretty close to a, to a nuclear war back then. And um, the miracle on ice in 1980 and just like history is such an important component of looking back at all, at, at all that. So the um, yeah, Lake Placid was special, man. Once again, Jerry putting in that extra effort, he knows he's in Lake Placid. He really had a sense of history and being in a special place. And then you could hear he would put in that extra effort. During the, the opening sugary and the closing deal, that first set, Lake Placid, incredible. And one of the amazing things about my pilgrimage is sometimes you'd go to a place like Herb Brooks Arena, which used to be Olympic Center. It's open to the public. You could set up shop in there. I, I, could, I could stay in there, listen to, I could listen to the entire tour in that building and just sat, sat in the arena. <laughs> they, they let you right in. There's no security. It's like, it's a, it's a shrine. It's there to be, it's there for the public. And then you go to a place like Madison Square Garden, which is a different kind of shrine. You have to buy a ticket to get in. And uh, for the uh, 
for, for the 10 11 83 show um in, in the year 2022 the rangers were playing it was open, opening night of the hockey season so i got tickets went in and listened to the entire show and it was pretty damn cool because madison square garden was rocking like you know, it was opening night the rangers score and you could feel the garden shake like it would shake during saint stephen or something so it was it was definitely a time out of mind experience you know listening to the music and feeling the excitement of a new york city crowd in madison square garden live so yeah this whole pilgrimage it was just interesting the way I had to get into some places. You haven't got to this chapter yet, but for the Worcester show on October 20th, um, the only way to get into Worcester, which is now the DCU center, there was a police graduation that morning at 8.30. And I was the only person <laughs> who wasn't, wasn't, wasn't either a cop or a, cop or a family member of the cop. I just walked right in as if I was there for the graduation and listened to the, to the Grateful Dead show. So. <laughs> It was kind of, it was an adventure finding out how I was going to get in, whether I was going to see cool entertainment or, or if I was going to have to hang out with cops, but I was going to get in on, on the anniversary date. <laughs> Epic. I, I applaud your persistence. <laughs> and make it an adventure. And that's another thing that Garcia, um, one of the great statements that I love, and I, I can't recall it word for word, but he said in 1989, he was being interviewed by Rolling Stone. He said, you can't hop the frame trains anymore um you know but you can go to a grateful dead show you can have your tires blown out in the middle west and catch hell from strangers and you know, just trying to say that the grateful dead were the last great american adventure and, and it's so true like these days anywhere you go you could you know you got gps you know you're going to get there man when we went to places like lake placid or alpine valley just arriving there was like the greatest thrill. Like, holy shit, we actually made it. This place exists. <laughs> Where with GPS, you know you're getting there. You know, there's, there's no there's no adventure to it. It's it's fun, but uh, you know, everything back then was an adventure. Like, the map actually led us here. It took us two extra hours, but we we got here, man. So, um, that's a really nice little thing that you just teed up for me. So, on Sunday, my dad called me and told me that he's concocting a plan to start driving around the U.S. He's retired, he's single, he's going to buy a little camper and start traversing the United States. And um, what I said was, I think that's a great idea. I applaud you. And I started telling him about one of my favorite books of all time, Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck. And I started quoting it to him. And then I said, it also reminds me of one of my favorite Jerry Garcia quotes. And now I'm going to read from your book because I have it up right here. The quote that you're talking about, let's read it verbatim because it's so wonderful. Quote, it's an adventure you can still have in America, just like Neil Cassidy on the road. You can't hop the freights anymore, but you can chase the Grateful Dead around. You can have all your tires blow out in some weird town in the Midwest and you can get help from strangers. You can have something that lasts throughout your life as adventures, the times you took chances. I think that's essential in anybody's life and it's harder and harder to do in America. Well, it's even harder in today's America for the reasons that you just said. And so the fact that you went out there and did the damn thing in 2022, um, I just have to applaud you. So again, job well done. And I really hope that everyone will buy The Grateful Pilgrimage. It's available on Amazon right now. You can buy it on Kindle like I did. You can buy a paperback and um, go check out Howard's writing because it's excellent. Um, Before I let you go though, I do want to hear if you have any highlights of what you were listening to at Cornell, because I'm going to do a little concert review after you and I get off. And so I'd like to know what, what you think were like the high points for you when you were listening. Um, again, knowing the second set was when you were more focused. 
yeah, I thought I thought the China Cat was pretty ripping. I remember hearing that it was it was excellent. Um, the Scarlet had like the Scarlet outro was nice. It was long. It, it developed nice and slow. It was cool. The um, the morning do seemed pretty hot. <laughs> now now one of the problems that I, that I, I ran into I wasn't running the music. The guy's radio got interrupted as we were listening, you know, so I didn't get to hear the whole jam in its entirety, which is why tonight I'm going back and I'm really going to like, you know, dig into it when it's uh, played in its entirety tonight. And I'm going to have my speakers set up. There's going to be no interruptions. But yeah, it was uh, a lot of really good stuff. The uh, help slips was, pre was pretty hot. So um, I think that the things that, and the fire was great too. So did, that second set was just, you know, the first set I really didn't get to hear as much as I liked, but the, the entire second set they were just on man the, the the energy in the place had to be ridiculous i've seen some pictures the lighting looked great it just looked like such a yeah. wild scene in there man it, uh, yeah, really did. it, it would have been one of those shows you would have been crying during constantly throughout it's moving to <laughs> tears and definitely i could see being inside there and you know absolutely last thing for you and then um uh then we got to go but dave and i are going to play a game this summer called estimated profits where we're going to guess some songs that are going to come up on the next Dead & Company show. So Dead & Co. kicks off their summer tour in Los Angeles a week from Friday. I'd be curious, do you have any song predictions for the first night? I, I got to think of what they haven't done to, to make it interesting. <laughs> what, what might they do in the... In the wow, that, that's tough. Let me think. I know, I really what, put what, you on what's, the spot. What's interesting that they haven't played? What, what do you think they, they could... Uh, well, it's tough because they did Estimated Eyes, China Rider, Help Slip Frank, and Scarlet Fire all during the last they, show. They, they, dumped every, they dumped everything at us and, uh, yeah. over there. Maybe and a Lost Sailor Saint? victim of a crime lately. I actually like, I, I like that too, man. I'm not even joking. Um, have they done it? I'm sorry. Did they, have they done it? No. Maybe no. maybe a bust out. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, why, that's why I kind of picked that one. I was looking for one that, uh, that, they, that they hadn't done. But yeah. Um, yeah, with with Maris O'Teal singing, I love to hear something. You know, more more O'Teal, man. Just to... totally agree. O'Teal's voice is great. I love the passion that he puts into his singing. So let's uh, let O'Teal sing this summer. And how about some uh, old time Dylan breakouts? Maybe that they uh, that they haven't done yet. What about a uh, Baby Blue? There you go. And we're we're we has no um, the man's not shy. He'll sing anything. Yeah, I think that's true. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun. I got to. Um, I'm going to be going to some more Dead and Co shows this year, man. It's it's whatever the next step is for those guys involved. It's going to be cool, you know. Yeah. I, th yeah. I think Mayor is going to go back to something Dead related, and you know, Teal will too. So um, it's, it might be the end of this configuration. And I think Billy Billy's uh, departure kind of almost makes sure that's going to happen. But um, whatever they started here, I, I think they're going to continue doing. And uh, the music never stops, whether it's with Dead & Co. or with oh, I, any I of the other bands. I, I haven't realized they haven't done have, have they done that lately? Or no, they haven't. You want to you want to make that one of your calls for this show? That sounds good. Music never stops, man. That that's that was always one of my favorites, and I, I think Merrick could really rip that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Howard, thank you so much for your time, man. Again, congrats on the book, and um, be well. I'm sure that we will be in touch. Howard Weiner. Thank you again to Howard for joining us 
on today's episode, and I hope that you enjoyed it. We will be back on Tuesday of next week with an episode about Dave's Picks Volume 46, back to our regular old Grateful Dead fair. And then we'll be back very frequently this summer as we will be covering every stop on Dead & Company's final tour with one of our DNC in 23 episodes. Hope you'll join us for that. And in the meantime, remember, the music never stops.